Good morning, everyone. If you haven't already, please do find a place at a table. We'll be starting in just a moment. I want to welcome everybody here. My name is Jean Zanka. I am a senior research scientist in spinal cord injury research at Kessler Foundation. And I've had the honor of coordinating this conference with a lot of helpful advice from my colleagues at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and also at Kessler Foundation. And I'm grateful for all of their help and so happy that you're here. So first of all, I uh, beg your patience a little bit. As one might expect, we're a little bit crowded. And I uh, erred on the side of letting everyone who wanted to attend today do that. And of course, the downside of that is that it's a little bit cramped. So hopefully you'll make friends, whether or not you intended to. And I thank you for bearing with those circumstances and hanging in there throughout the day. We hope it'll be a valuable one for you. Now, there is one face not here today that you may have been expecting to see, and that's Trevor Dyson Hudson. Um, Trevor is here with us very much in spirit. There is a meeting today for one of the studies that he's involved in that was scheduled and unavoidably had to be scheduled on this date, and so to make sure that study can proceed in the way it should, he is there representing Kessler Foundation, but I bring his good wishes, and he is uh, definitely with us in his heart and hoping everyone has a wonderful experience today. I also wanted to uh, give a quick thanks and, and note that we have a number of volunteers today from Kessler Foundation and from other organizations, and they're marked with little yellow flags on their name tags. So if you see anybody smiling with a Kessler name tag on and you have a question, feel free to ask. They'll be very happy to help you. So if we think about what this conference is about and we look at the title, the most important word in this title to me is opportunity. I think very often a lot of the conversations that happen after spinal cord injury are about what's difficult, what is challenging, what seems like it might be impossible. Well, that's not what today is about. Today is about what is possible, and there's a lot that's possible for people with spinal cord injury. There are all kinds of opportunities that exist. Some are created through policy, as we're, we will hear Joe Entwistle speak about in a little bit. Some are created through technology, which Fred Chang and Javier Robles will talk about after that. Some are created through creativity and thinking about things in a new way, and our keynote speaker, Charlie Fleischer, will talk to you about that. And still other opportunities are created by research, and Drs. Wise Young and Steve Kirschbloom will speak this afternoon on some of the work that's going on to create new opportunities for recovery after spinal cord injury. So we think this is a very positive day, and my hope is that you leave this conference today maybe feeling a little bit more optimistic about something than you thought, or maybe having your present optimism supported, or perhaps realizing that there are more doors open than you perhaps thought were before. If we accomplish that, I think it will be a great success, and we're so glad that you're here to share this day with us. Now, of course, there are the inevitable housekeeping announcements that have to be done. I did some, some thanks before, but I want to make sure to do some special thanks to our sponsors. We received a grant from the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation, which made this event possible, and also have generous support from Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and from Kessler Foundation, which we greatly appreciate. Um, there are a number of organizations that also provided support in various ways. These include Hollister, the United Spinal Association, mainly special needs travel, and fun truck and mobility, some of whom are represented in the exposition that you see in the hallway outside. And we give our great thanks to them as well. And I thank all of my colleagues at Kessler Foundation and KIR for all their help. And I won't name names because if I do that, I'll probably forget people. But there is one particular shout out I must make, and that is to Ashley Quinn, who is one of our research assistants and who kindly allowed me to make her my assistant in all things conference related. And she's probably personally responsible for, you, for a bunch of you being here because she stalked you in outpatient therapy. So thank you for letting us do that. <laughs> and we're all glad that you're here. 
And I also have to thank the advice of our community advisory committee for the, uh, the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is hosting this event, which provided me very helpful feedback, and it's their feedback that you see reflected in the program. And we hope that you'll enjoy it, and you have them to thank in large part for that. So a few other things. If you haven't already, please do go ahead and put your cell phones on vibrate. That will help us out and not be disturbed during the talks. Um, we also request that you not take any videos or audio recordings or photographs, particularly of the presentation slides. We'll be working with our presenters to share things with you after the conference, so you don't have to be concerned about that. And it's just part of making sure that they can share things in the context of this conference as freely as they might like. And we'll be happy to find other ways of getting you the access to that content later on. There are restrooms that are located down this hallway and to the left. If those are crowded, which they may well be because there's only one accessible stall in each, if you take the elevators that are down this hallway down one level and go around the security desk, there are two hallways to your left and there are bathrooms with accessible stalls in those. And the security desk staff can help orient you to those if you need it. You also will have received in your uh, name tags a little orange ticket that you may be wondering what that's all about. So what we request is that by the end of the first talk, you place that ticket on the table that you are seated at. We'll collect those during the break, and that will let us know which tables we should deliver various lunches to. So we will bring you your lunches at that time. That'll help ease traffic a little bit so that everybody can move smoothly and we can uh, get to the keynote address with minimal disruption. So we thank you for dropping those tickets on the tables at your earliest convenience. In addition, we have uh, in your packets, you will find on the left-hand side, a form for a backpack giveaway. So the United Spinal Association uh, has generously donated some backpacks. They include a water bottle and some great educational materials. We have 25 of those. So the first 25 of you, and I do request that we limit it to one per family if possible, the first 25 of you who go to all of the exhibition booths and find the little red numbers that are in little white numbers that are in red starbursts on those tables and fill those into that sheet, the first 25 who do that correctly will win a backpack that we'll provide to you before you leave at the end of the day. Also in your packets are evaluations, so we welcome all your feedback about the conference and we'll accept those from you at the end of the conference or we can make arrangements to fill those out with you later if you would like. And then before we depart, uh, in order to be supportive of all of our colleagues here at KAR who are doing wonderful things, I'm going to invite my colleague to come on up and do a little bit of a plug for the Adapted Recreation Expo, which is an event that's going to happen this coming Tuesday, right here in the same location. The setup will be different, but it's the same place. So if you found it once, you can find it again. And I'll have you come on up, Kristen. And we will talk about that a little bit more for you. You ready? Very good. Hi everybody, my name's Kristen and I'm a recreation therapist for the inpatient therapy department here at Kessler. So I just wanted to take a minute to let you guys know about the Adapted Recreation Expo that we're hosting here next week. Um, like she said, it's gonna be next Tuesday, October 7th. It starts at 11 and runs till about three in the afternoon. And we have 19 vendors coming in to showcase their products and services tailored to fit the needs of our spinal cord injury population as well as our traumatic brain injury population and several other diagnoses in between those. Some of the vendors attending include several accessible vehicle companies that offer sales, rentals, and services, state disability rights and services departments, Freedom Wings Adapted Sail Planes, United Spinal Association and Wheelchair Sports Federation, companies that make and service in-home lifts and ramps, equestrian riding and hippotherapy company, and so many more. Like it was said before, the expo is going to be right here in the Kessler Conference Center, so you already know where to go when you get here. 
And when you attend, you'll have the opportunity to meet with exhibitors, test their products, learn more about the services that they offer, and explore new activities available to you within this community. If you're interested, I have a full list of vendors attending right out these center doors to the right on a table over there. So please feel free to take one on your way out. If you have any questions, my office number is on that list and on the flyers that are available to you, so please contact me if there's anything you need. Thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you guys next Tuesday, October 7th. All right. Very good. So without further ado, we're going to prepare for our first presenter. Just move this out of the way. So we are very pleased to welcome um, Joe Entwistle, who is a senior po policy analyst with Health and Disability Advocates, and who came to us via Milwaukee Airport successfully, I'm so happy to say, last night. So I was breathed a sigh of relief when I knew he had landed and all was well. And um, he offers, I think, a tremendous amount of both personal and professional experience that I think you'll find very valuable. So I'm going to keep my presentation short because you're not here to listen to me, you're here to listen to him, and we'll let him get right to it. Thank you all. Well, thank you very much, uh, and I really, I'm really excited to be here and be a part of the day. And it's really kind of unique because there aren't that many opportunities I have to be around so many people in chairs, and it's kind of awesome. I've never been so excited to have such a hard time navigating a room. Um, now, when I first got the call and I started talking to Jeannie and getting invited uh, to come to present, I was pretty excited about the whole process. Uh, normally when I go to present and people talk about, well, myth-busting and the idea about employment and disability, you know, so much of it, it's about policy is what I do for work. Uh, so a lot of it's about, you know, how do we innovate design and make sure that healthcare and employment are both integrated so that it's an opportunity for everyone, that it's the default and the expectation that particularly in living in a country like America, it's just a natural progression of life, like disability. The older you live, the more likely you're going to be a member of this elite club. Uh, and it's a part of why I never mind getting older. Uh, there are many people who are denied those kind of elite, elite club memberships, so I'm happy to see every year. But as we started talk, Jeannie said, well, we'd like to talk about myth-busting, but a little bit about storytelling, about what your life and what your experience has been like. Uh, and for me, it, it was kind of exciting. It's it just not the kind of conversation I normally have. So many of the times, it's, you know, what my friend usually refers to as kind of brain hurt presentations, where you get about five minutes in and you kind of numb over from the policy work. Uh, but this time, it was a bit to share my own story. And I got hung up for a little bit on the idea of storytelling, because it's been such a grand experience from our evolution since the early time of man. Uh, you know, early on, storytellers were really the cornerstones of humanity before kind of the written word and before the iPhone, of course. Uh, you know, so much of generational learning and education was about people sharing one story to the next. Now, I don't think that Kessler was expecting me to come in with an evolutionary discussion about where things are at to make a big change, but it certainly was a big spark. Uh, and being here in the room with you guys today and being here at Kessler, I, again, is really just an honor and I'm excited to be here today. And when we first started having a discussion as well, we would talk about, well, what's your experience like and what's kind of the myth-busting? Myth and particularly as my life is maybe different from maybe everyone else's over the span of the last 25 years since my injury. And at first you start to think, well, you know, is my life really that different from most people? I mean, I get up every morning, I go to a job that arguably I do love, 
But it's really about not just necessarily the work as much as also being able to live a lifestyle I want, to buy a home, to go on vacation, to do the things I want to do. Um, and you know, that's really kind of the way everybody else does. Is it, do I really have nuggets of wisdom to share over those past 25 years and what that existence has been like? And you usually tend to get plenty of, uh, plenty of ideas that maybe your life isn't the same. I mean, I always think about, even last week, they had a meeting downtown Chicago. And I live in Milwaukee, and it's by our home office, uh, where I work is in Chicago as well. So it, it always happens the same way. But my wife drops me off at the airport. They catch the Amtrak down. And the meeting was down on uh, Michigan Avenue. Is anybody familiar with Michigan Avenue or Chicago? Aha, we've got some people. Uh, but the train station is about a mile away from Michigan Avenue. And like any big city, you're walking along in the concrete jungle. And it was quite early in the morning. It was about 7 o'clock by the time I got to Chicago. And as you walk along in a concrete jungle, the only sky you actually see is if you look directly straight up until you hit Michigan Avenue. It's what's great because you go from nothing but uh, shadows to pure sunlight. And it's 52 degrees in the morning, which for me is ice cold. Anything below 70 is not worth experiencing. So by the time I got to Michigan Avenue, I was chilly. And as I came around the corner, it was like you could hear the angels come out like, <laughs> nothing but pure sunlight. And I'm in a black suit, so I'm like, I'm going to warm up. Uh, because also, like everyone else's experience, Amtrak doesn't really care what my schedule is. So it's a choice of being two hours early or maybe being late. So I was two hours early in the meeting, and with that kind of sunlight, I was happy to have some time to sit. Because I had my coworkers weren't even going to be there for about 40 minutes. So I came around the corner and I backed up against the wall to try to warm up for a little bit. And I started to do what I normally do. I checked in with work, looked at my email, and then started to tap into what I usually refer to as mental crack. Most people call it Twitter. Uh, and as I started to thumb through, you know, you get people who kind of stare and look as they walk by because everybody's curious. And again, anybody who has a disability, pretty used to people staring and having some questions. Uh, but one guy kind of stood there and he just looked so puzzled and pained for the longest time that I was just getting ready to ask him, like, really, what's going on? And then I could read the caption above his head, which clearly said, hmm, a full black suit is probably not the outfit for panhandling, and where in the hell am I going to throw the money? <laughs> so yes, indeed, my experience may be not exactly like everyone else's. So with that, I thought I'd maybe tap into really what's my experience of them has been and what's the difference in the last 25 years. So when I was, had my injury, I was 16 years old. Do we have any 16-year-olds in the room? Oh, 16 year, 16 year old is such a great time. It's really kind of blissful ignorance. And I think uh, one of my favorite t-shirts I've ever seen really kind of sums up what it's like to be 16 years old. Um, I remember I saw a guy in a t-shirt and he said, when I was 16, I couldn't believe what idiots my parents were. He said, now I'm 21. It is amazing what they've learned in five years. That was really 16 for me. Um, I was an athlete, a very successful athlete. Had lettered in three sports since the time I was a freshman. Um, and at that time, by the end of my junior year of high school, 
I was already talking to colleges about scholarships and deciding where I was going to go and what my future was going to be like. So it was really kind of an exciting time. It certainly added to my own ideas of grandioseness of what I knew and what I didn't. Uh, and by the time I finished my, my junior year of football, I then started wrestling season, uh, which I'd done since I was five, year old, five years old. Nothing different out of everyday ordinary life until one January cold morning. Uh, again, on that morning, I had a wrestling accident, slipped and fell in practice, and it changed my life. Uh, again, you know, at least at the point, I was happy it was practice and not a match. Would have tarnished my record. So at least I could go out with that. But as I woke up, I found myself in a hospital. Uh, and at that point in time, you know, I don't really remember anything from the first month or so of my injury. Uh, because I was at practice when I had my injury, I had a trainer who'd massaged my neck, which induced a lot of swelling, which at the, you know, later on I would realize caused a lot of problems. I ended up on a ventilator for about nine and a half months um, and just lost everything from the chin down. But as I was in ICU, and really, you know, it's okay to forget that first month. They medicate you well. Uh, and it's really good because there really isn't a whole lot of diary moments that you really want to share for later. Uh, but at that point in time, I find myself in ICU. I had to wait for about six and a half months before I actually had surgery because of the swelling. But right away, I started to realize that even though I'd gone through kind of a traumatic experience and I now found myself in an ICU, that there still were a lot of life lessons you can pick up in this process. And the first life lesson for me was that as I woke up, I found myself in ICU with five other guys. And every single one of them were all in a coma. And at that point, I realized that I didn't really know what my future was going to be like, but I knew that I did have something that I could have lost, and that was my own ability to control my own destiny. I had my own thoughts, and I had my own mind, and things could always be far worse. First lesson moving forward. So at that point, um, I started rehab, I had my surgery, and I got to that point of sitting up for the first time. And that is such a marvelous experience. How many people remember that first setting up process? And I'm assuming that is an incredibly painful and horrid process for everyone. Not a unique experience. Uh, but for me, it was really bad. It was quite medically fragile. And as I started set up, I kind of hit rock bottom at an emotional point for me. Um, again, I don't know what it's like for everyone else. But for me, I'd gotten to that point where I just had that conversation like, okay, God, I don't care if at this point everything is done or everything's going to change, but one of the two is going to happen. Uh, and things started to change after that. And things got better, and I was really fortunate to have an incredible family and friends around me in a way that, that really, again, lets you know how lucky you are and start to realize that there are a lot of things that are really pretty wonderful about life because it continues. Uh, and at that point, I really started to be able to get, call pa get passes to get out and re-experience life and do the things that I used to enjoy, going out to movies, going to sporting events, eating out at restaurants, which is clearly something I enjoy very much still today. Uh, but at that point, you realize that you kind of make choices in life and that, sure, there are bad things that happen, 
but at this point, you make a choice to either experience the things that are great in life, which are abundant, or you really kind of focus on the things that are pretty rotten. And you can either, you know, focus on those things that you can't change or deal with the things you can. So from that point, it was starting off with goal setting. Uh, and for me, it started going to high school. I really wanted to graduate with my class. I tutored through this, this summer, and I took my finals right before my senior year. Went to school, graduated with my class like everyone else, and tried to look around for, you know, a quads for dummies, which they didn't have in 1989, and apparently they still don't now. Uh, but at that point, it was, you know, what do I want my future to look like? So I looked around at different universities, went to UW-Whitewater, who was one of the most accessible campuses in the U.S. at that point in time, and uh, went to school. Uh, did all the things that I really wanted to do. Started off, pledged to fraternity, and then had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And it, you know, at that point, I also had to realize that there was a huge gravity nationally at the time that I had my injury and from the time I went from uh, high school to college during the, it was 1990. So I had my injury, graduated from my class, and between that summer of high school and college, the ADA was signed by George Bush. Uh, and the Americans with Disabilities Act was really the first time politically and as a country we really acknowledged that disability is a natural part of living and that people with disabilities have every opportunity to access the environment uh, as someone without a disability. And that was a huge pivotal moment for people who don't know what that's like before. And even I still continue to be fortunate to be ignorant of that question. Um, you know, it's a really just a huge changing moment for people with disabilities as we move forward. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I really tried to look at do I want to focus on a hard science or a soft science? I've always been a fan. And at the time, technology isn't what it is now. I mean, at this point, I've got more technology in my cell phone than probably the CIA had at the time of my injury. It's really pretty incredible. Um, so I went to the soft science. Again, I had a passion for counseling and people itself. And I thought, I've had a lot of experience in these first couple of years. There's got to be something in there that I can share with others. Uh, about my own life experience and what disability is like. So I focused on psychology and biology, graduated four and a half years later, and they're really the kind of the prerequisites for rehabilitative psychology, which is kind of where I wanted to put my focus. So I graduated and I went, into, went to school at UW-Madison. It's a great school and one of the leading programs in the nation as far as rehab psych went. Um, and as I went through, I said, you know, what's kind of the fastest you can get in and out of here? 15 months. So 15 months later, I graduated and started working for uh, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, as well as, and then from there, on to a clubhouse approach to mental health. And it's kind of long-term, working with individuals with long-term chronic mental illness, getting recovery and back into the world of employment. And it, then at that point, I started to work for the VA, Outpatient Substance Abuse and Mental Health Counseling. Always kind of focusing on employment, because I knew what a motivation, motivational force it was for me, and how important it was to do the things I really wanted to do. And that was the first time in my life that I 
kind of experienced a smack in the face as far as what the reality was in kind of making the connection between health care and employment. That when I had my injury, I was really fortunate. Um, my dad was a federal employee, built dams for a living. And so as a federal employee, the insurance was amazing. And I had full-time attendant care coverage when I left the hospital. It was a vet-dependent quad, so it required nursing care. And that, of course, rapidly ate through that insurance policy. And then I was left with really the only long-term care option uh, for health care, which is Medicaid. So as an SSI recipient, I really had no idea until I started receiving letters from Social Security that, wow, like employment actually impacted my ability to live independently in the community. So I was completely freaked out. And this was before benefits planning. Is that a term folks are familiar with, benefits planning? We'll talk a little bit about it. But um, so I had no idea. I started thinking, am I going to have to quit working? Like, what are my options? And I was really fortunate because I actually bumped into someone I knew who said, you know, well, there's a 1619B program. I didn't know what that meant. It seemed like code for something I hoped was good. Um, and as I would soon find out, uh, I went to Social Security, I found a 1619B, you can work, maximize your income, and you can maintain your connectivity to healthcare. It was that point I realized, I need to make some changes. I've got to figure out how this works. And I'm a bit of a nerd anyway, so it seemed like a natural progression. And actually the woman who I had talked to, who could talk about work, its impact on benefits, and how you can really make sure that you can provide a seamless transition to maximize your employment was really kind of a trendsetter. I started to work for her right away. And I learned everything I could about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, really all of the programs that connect healthcare and employment to individuals with disabilities. It was that point I learned a lot about what the options were, what the opportunities were, uh, and really about just this transition to employment. Um, from there, I had an opportunity and I took it to go work for the University of Wisconsin at Madison uh, between special projects between the state uh, and the Department of Health and Human Services. I had the opportunity to work on some really kind of innovative policies with Social Security. We looked at different experimental programs around policy changes with the SSI program and the SSDI program. Um, and then came the Medicaid infrastructure grants. And they were really kind of incredible in a, in a whole new way. Because again, it was a pivotal shift in policy from the federal government as well as from states. It was really kind of a public acknowledgement. It gave states the opportunities to build Medicaid buy-in programs. And Medicaid buy-in programs allow individuals with disabilities to buy into Medicaid like a normal insurance program. And what's really pivotal and different about that is Medicaid has really been about being available for individuals who are both medically and financially needy. So the benchmark has always been really low for eligibility, and it's always required individuals with disabilities to live in poverty. But there was the first time where they've said, medicine and technology has advanced far enough that we acknowledge that in keeping that bar low, we're keeping individuals with disabilities from participating in the labor force. And again, with those advances in medicine and technology, we're really kind of cutting our, our nose off to spite our face. But we're also, in the same way, we're selling a lot of people short. 
So the Medicaid buy-in policy was a huge change and a pivotal shift. And what was great for me is I got to meet a lot of amazing people across the country and work on these same kinds of projects. There was such a huge shift and a mental shift in policy. Javier Robles was here today, um, another great person who just the special people you get to work with in that time was really great. And it also gave me the opportunities to work for the company I work for now, get health and disability advocates in Chicago. Can we still work on innovating the social safety net with the feds, with states, with businesses? And how, again, we always infuse the opportunities for employment between healthcare and employment and connection for people with disabilities. And that's huge. And what's different now is people have access to benefits planners because of free service. And they, you know, for everyone else, you don't have to bump into somebody who knows about a program called 1619B that makes work an opportunity for everyone. And the great thing is you continue to get all of those reminders that, again, even though your life may feel like everyone else's, it certainly is a different experience. And I think this summer was certainly a kind of a wake-up call for me. But we were at a park, and I've got three-year-old twins. They were two and a half at the time. And my wife and I and the, the girls were at a park on a Saturday afternoon. It was a beautiful day. And I think an experience that probably most other people have had in the room is experience with little kids who are very curious about your situation and kind of how things work. So as we sat there, was this little kid, he was about 10 years old, so cute, and he came up, and of course he's fascinated. Like, how does this chair work? What's the straw for? And what are you doing with the phone? And what's the stick in your mouth? So we explained through, we were talking, and as I was watching my wife and one of my girls, she's a natural climber. And at two and a half, she had scaled this giant set of monkey bars. And I was kind of getting freaked out. And uh, about that time, I kind of hollered over like, babe, like, look out. And uh, he said, well, who is that? They said, well, that's my wife and my kids. And he just had the most puzzled and pained look on his face. And I kind of knew what he was thinking uh, because my daughters are African-American and both my wife and I are pasty Caucasians. So I was pretty sure he was thinking, like, what? Like, how you, what? And it really, he thought about it and you could see, like, the gears turning. And he turned around with this just crazed look on his face and he said, wait, does your wife know you're like this? So after a couple minutes, I tried to get him to reinsure and say, let's keep it a secret between us. <laughs> but again, another good reminder, maybe your experience isn't like everyone else's. So in being able to share a little bit about that, I also wanted to get into some of the, get a little bit of the conversation, what feels like a little bit more brain hurt for me. And for you guys to talk a little bit about just some additional myth busting. And why, at least for me right now, I feel like if there was ever an opportune time to be a person with a disability, that time is really now. And certainly being able to work with so many people with varying disabilities, I remember early on having that thought, uh, and it just seems so bizarre, but to think, you know, when it comes to disability, disability spinal cord injury is a slice of our right. Uh, probably not something most people think, but that's a little insight to my warped head. So with that, we'll talk a little bit about kind of what most people hear, especially when they hear the connection to tech, healthcare, disability, social security in general. There's certainly the largest pervasive myth is that 
if you have a disability, you have kind of two choices. Either you are on benefits or you work, that there's no connection between the two. And again, when you require some connection to long-term care, in Medicaid, you, it, Medicaid, it's really your only option. So again, there's always been this assumption and this myth that there really is no connection between the two. It's one or the other. And clearly, based on my experience, it's simply not true. So if we want to move to the next slide. You know, healthcare itself and disability, especially when it comes to Social Security, kind of has a natural progression, like everything else in life. You come off, and really for Social Security standards, in order to be eligible for benefits, you have to have a disability that really impacts your ability to work and earn at what Social Security calls substantial gainful activity, which is roughly about $1,000 a month. As you come into the program, clearly there is a connection to cash benefits, get health care, depending on which of the two disability programs you're in. Because you go to work, there are some great work incentives, and we'll talk a little bit about that because we move through, but you can receive cash benefits, you get also your earnings, and again, your health care. Eventually, you work your way off the cash benefits, stick to work, and then at some point, for many folks, you have the ability to actually leave even the healthcare system itself, because the traditional healthcare system and what's available to other workers meets your needs. I mean, certainly if you're a low para, probably the connection to Medicaid isn't necessary. But you can leave the program, and then at some point, as you retire and move forward, you're back to cash benefits and back to health care itself. And that's kind of what the social safety net's supposed to be like. Be there, it's supposed to be there for you, protect health care, protect your cash benefits, and we'll talk a little bit about more in the next couple slides. So first, if you're a participant in Social Security, you have a disability, can you work? Obviously the answer is yes. Uh, social Security really kind of operates two programs. They've got SSI, the Supplemental Security Income, because they got SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance. And it's always interesting when we hear a lot about, especially the SSDI system. Um, so many people kind of refer to it as if it's kind of a welfare program um, or some kind of social program, but it's an insurance program. Now you pay for it with your FICA taxes, and it really is a required insurance to pay for long-term care. And that's what it's there for. For as someone incurs disability, it impedes their ability to work, that's the social safety net. Now, Social Security has plenty of work incentives that provide for a fairly seamless transition. Uh, social Security, it, uh, on the SSDI side, it's kind of interesting because as a long-term care insurance program, it's kind of an all-or-nothing cash-based system. You got a full year to test out work, and it doesn't matter how much you earn, you maintain your connection to, to the program. You can maintain your connection to cash benefits. It comes with Medicare. Slightly less robust than Medicaid, but certainly a quality healthcare program. So you can work first year, no impact on cash benefits, maintain connection to healthcare. For the next three years, the next 36 months, it's kind of an all or nothing cash-based system. You earn above that SGA amount, no cash benefits, Below it, you maintain your connection. Over the 36 years, that stays the same. From there forward, depends on whether you earn above or below what happens to your cash benefits. You again maintain that connection to the Medicare. 
can even from the time you start working through the next eight and a half years, you still have the connection to healthcare. So that idea that you somehow are jeopardizing your healthcare from going to work, really not true. And even after that, you can buy into Medicare. Um, and the great thing is they have what's called expedited reinstatement. Even once you've completely left the program, after that eight years in the connection to healthcare, you still have the opportunity to, in over that five-year time, if you have to stop working, you can always just call Social Security. They immediately connect you right back to Social Security, your cash benefit, as well as your healthcare. Now, SSI, the Supplemental Security Income, it's a slightly different animal. Um, it really is the social safety net for individuals who don't have a work history, don't have that same purchase into the, the FICA, into the long-term care insurance. And again, that comes from your own work history. Uh, now on the SSI side, it's a very small cash benefit. It's really about just being able to live and survive, pay your basic bills. But it comes with the Medicaid. And Medicaid, again, is a robust plan for healthcare arguably one of the most robust in the world. And when somebody who is on that SSI side works, it's really kind of a different transgression because instead of having kind of a precipitous over-under, you really are allowed to wean your way off of cash benefit. So you have a $2, for every $2 you earn, there's a dollar reduction. And that seamless kind of progression off means individuals can work and maintain their healthcare coverage. You can earn your way off of cash benefits, maintain your Medicaid in, indefinitely. And that was the mysterious 1619B that I eventually found out about. And what's really great is between the two programs, Social Security also provides a free benefit called benefits planning, and that was the field that I learned into. And for every individual who receives Social Security, you can contact in your own state somebody who can help you figure out can provide a seamless process into transitioning into the world of work and protect your benefits. So again, from my experience over that, that period of time, there's a seamless process for being able to return to work. And you no longer have to rely on somebody to hopefully bump into who can at least explain what that world is like. So we'll move on a little bit. You know, a lot of people have always said, you know, why do all these rules have to be so complex? And there's a lot of people who really think, you know, we do have a deficit in this country in science, technology, engineering, and math. And so, you know, a lot of people think, well, the rules are complex because they figure if you can navigate this system, clearly we're going to gravitate people towards policy analysts and actuaries. That actually is not the case. It's been a long process, and as medicine and technology has improved, we're slowly and gradually improving our pol public policy in a way to provide a transition for folks into work. Now, we also talked a little bit about the Medicaid buy-in programs. Again, right now, 45 states have these programs. Again, it really is a unique and pretty incredible opportunity, um, especially as, you know, for indiv any individual who needs access to that long-term care, to be able to buy into Medicaid like a regular insurance program and have that coverage is huge. So the benefit specialists that you can get from Social Security also help connect folks to make that seamless transition from, again, as a beneficiary to somebody who's a worker. Now, that's kind of a bit of the more like brain hurt conversation we had to have. And more of the rest of the conversation is really about why is it such an exciting time, at least for me, 
to be a person with a disability. We've made a lot of progress politically and publicly um, in the way that our programs operate, but now it really is a unique and special time. So we move forward. Part of what makes it exciting and what's making some significant shifts in policy and the way we kind of see the world is really what our population pyramid looks like right now. And this is our reality as a country. Demographers have already predicted that you know, over the span of the next 30 years or so, the U.S. is probably going to be about 40 million workers short of bodies to fill the gap. And unless we have some significant shifts in immigration policy, which I am wild guessing is probably not going to change anytime soon, uh, you know, we really have a big problem coming up. And that we've got to, if we're going to stay viable economically, as a country, we've got to have a greater access to bodies to fill those roles. And again, we've already figured out that people with disabilities can do just about anything uh, with some kind of modification. Because what disability is really about, again, spinal cord injury, it's not about an inability to do things, it's about changing the way we do things. And it's about looking at different perspectives. Because certainly as technology in particular has changed, as well as medicine, people with disabilities have an opportunity to do really anything they want to um, when you put your mind to it. Nothing's impossible. And with these demographics, we really have to be an integrated part of this country as far as employment goes if we're going to stay viable as a country to be, so, to be as productive. So with those demographics um, and with some of this reality, obviously public policy-wise, people with disabilities have become a hot topic for, for a number of reasons. Business-wise, dis disability is an extremely hot topic. And these are just some of the basics. If right now, you look globally, people with disabilities make up about 1.3 billion people. And this is people who are currently actively disabled and people who are right on that fringe edge. Certainly, uh, many of the millennials and baby boomers are part of this population. Now, keep in mind, 1.3 billion people, that's the population of China. And when you're looking for a market, that's a huge market. And when you add in the family members and friends, which 30% of families in America alone have a family member with a disability, you're talking about roughly almost 3 trillion or 3 billion people across the planet, just under half the globe. So right now, businesses as well as the federal government realize disability is a huge population and a hot topic. Disability is also the largest minority group in the U.S., larger than Latinos, larger than LGBT, larger than African Americans, Asians, and they're also one of the least tapped markets. And what's amazing is it's the most heterogeneous population of any minority group. It spans ethnicity, it spans age, it spans religion, sexuality, anything. And so businesses are starting to really turn heads and realize this is a group we need to market. We get everything all at once. And I, I, you know, I realized in 2008, there was also a huge pivot as a society in how we see disability. Um, there was a case, I know it's a little more popular now than it was in 2008, but I think people are familiar with the name Oscar Pistorius. Oscar Pistorius was petitioning the Olympics. He wanted to compete with able-bodied athletes having no legs from just below the knee down, 
used prosthetics to run. And it was the first time that people talked about someone having a disability as being more capable and being better than and having advantages that, that able-bodied individuals didn't have. That's a pivotal shift in the way people thought. Pivotal shifts in the way that even plays have been written, like the one noted, that talked about the advantages and how society will see disability in the future. And when you think about the way technology is moving and advancing, we're rapidly approaching that crux. Um, certainly the feds can see the writing on the wall. They know exactly what's going on. And many of the federal rules are even changing. Recently, the Department of Labor instituted the 503 regulations. And what it says is that for federal subcontractors and contractors, that they have to make a 7% of their workforce target is hiring and being integrated with individuals with disabilities. They see the writing on the wall, and they know the people with disabilities have to be an integral part of that workforce. And keep in mind, we're talking about you know, roughly a quarter of a million businesses. That's a huge investment in our own infrastructure. Without people with disabilities, we will fail. We also have the Work Incentive, Oppor Work Incentive Investment and Opportunities Act that was recently passed. It looks at reintegrating the connections between business, the business community, individuals with disabilities, as well as individuals who are unemployed, directing resources. What's most exciting about it to me is that uh, within that, that same uh, bill, it says that it, the, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation has to work with individuals who are 14 years or older who have a disability in schools. Think about that for just a moment. You're talking about high schools who have no, no requirement for a connection to future employment and education for non-disabled students, but for every kid with a disability, they have to be engaged in some way to complete their education, but also start to think about employment, post-secondary education. That's a huge shift in this country. So we keep moving forward. We've got states who are now implementing state as a model employer. They are already on track to start the race towards hiring the best qualified individuals with disabilities to be state employees. They want to be the place that people go to who have a disability to make sure that they're engaged. Now this is directly right out of Massachusetts materials that they're pumping hard out into the communities to say, we are a company, we hire inclusively, we are really looking for folks. And the, the biggest reasons is that there's this acknowledgement that one, Disability is a natural part of living. But two, they see a huge added value in people with disabilities. They fully acknowledge and they know that we're talking about people who have a different life experience than folks who are non-disabled. We're talking about folks who have figured out ingenious ways to deal with their situation and be actively engaged in everything they're already doing. There's a whole added level of thought process that happens with people with disabilities that most people just don't experience. And that's an added value to employers these days. And the states are aggressively going after individuals with disabilities for hire. And this is where we get to the big buzz. When you look at the world of business, these are numbers that were, that were crunched in 2012. So these are all 2012 figures. How big of a deal is it to businesses right now globally? $9 trillion of purchasing power. $9 trillion of purchasing power. I mean, when you think about it, a billion dollars, if you spend $1,000 a day, 
you'd have to spend it for more than 3,700 years in order to go through a billion dollars. Nine trillion dollars, that's large liquidity. And these are global numbers. So again, this is not just the US we're talking about who's looking at people with disabilities, it's a whole planet. That's a whole lot of money and that's a whole lot of investment in, in infrastructure. And what's crazy is here in the US, you hear everything about, what about teens and tweens? This is a much larger market segment with a purchasing power of about 17 times that population. Businesses are looking and they're ready to move. Now, this to me is something that just blew my mind. I mean, to me, the FIFA World Cup games and World Cup soccer is the true global games, and it always has been. Gets a low cost, every company competes. Yet how many people would have imagined in 2014 that an individual who's paralyzed would kick off the World Cup games with no connection to equipment as far as using brain waves to connect a whole able-bodied system? Now arguably, when you look at this, it really looks like something you would probably be more likely to see a burning man or maybe an updated version of Clockwork Orange. But you can quickly see with the rapid expansion of technology that there are, going to, that there are exoskeletons that are now already being used that is really going to modify just even ability-wise what individual, with individuals with disabilities and spinal cord injuries might be doing in the future. And disability is really changing business. You know, the business practice prior used to be that, you know, we would develop products and then find ways to make them accessible. But disability is changing everything and the writing's on the wall. Now we look at how do we develop products that each activate with, all five, with each of the five senses individually and not just all together because that meets disability and open to everyone. Because what we found out over time is that many of the products that we make accessible aren't just used for accessibility by individuals with disabilities. Some of the great analytics that they've done at Google is they started to do all the captioning for every YouTube product that came out. And what was baffling to them is they started to look at who uses that, that product. Because they found that far more people were using the closed captioning who did, had no auditory problems it was really people who had no problem hearing, but were maybe using them in an environment where they couldn't necessarily listen to the speakers, or English was a second language. It was a huge thought in thinking that, wow, people who use most of these accommodations aren't people with disabilities. It broadens their gap in who they can target to. In this picture here, in Google Cars, Google is developing products where cars can drive themselves. And they're not using able-bodied people to test those out and see how they work. This, the guy who's in the picture actually is blind. And he was one of the first people who began working in test driving many of Google cars. Another huge accommodation is some people would see it. But really, they're not going for people with disabilities as their population. They're going to the broader market. Again, it's not, it's not targeting products that we can make accessible. It's targeting products that are globally accessible university accessible. I always think that you know you've reached a huge transition, especially when disability hits the fashion market. Now this is an ad by Diesel. And the woman who is on the, the right side of the picture, um, again, they're marketing to the global population, a very inclusive product. But she's also the first woman who ever walked the catwalk in New York.
at the New York Fashion Show. Look another country on the next slide, Moscow. Uh, Moscow itself, Russia, not exactly the country you think of when you think of hugely disability-friendly countries, but even during not, Moscow, Moscow's Fashion Week this year, they had many designers who designed not just for, for able-bodied individuals, for individuals with disabilities as well. Not a separate designer for people with disabilities, but one who designs for all. And then also this year, in the next slide, in the New York Fall Fashion Week, there was a woman, quadruple amputee, lost all four limbs walking the catwalk uh, at a Carrie Hammer, a Carrie Hammer uh, designing her new line. That again, huge pivotal shifts, not a separate part of, not an afterthought, but an integral market we go to. We've got smart cars that are now being targeted specific to people with disabilities. And you can really pretty much get anything you want, even if you want a steampunk wheelchair. You know, disability has really gone mainstream. It's a huge part of who we are. I think five of the newest shows that are coming out all have central characters and main characters that are people with disabilities, a natural part of that process. And what's great is the biggest representation of people with disabilities in mainstream media, spinal cord injury. That's our people. And at this point, the media's gone far enough that we've even jumped the shark in what you say as far as accommodations. Now the stretch limo, the stretch limo itself, it's a nice feature. However, when it's coming with a, uh, you know, little cart, maybe a little bit of overkill. Everybody's really trying to get in on the action at this point. So, you know, we really, again, have moved to a pivotal shift in where we are as a country. It's really an amazing time to be a person with a disability. We make the choices to move forward and be another part of that, that integration. But also, we are part of the future. We're the future of the economy. We're the future, really, of where technology's going. I mean, think about the aspects of Google right now has contacts that actually have a camera in it. I mean, we're integrated into our own technologies. And technology is a big part of what's changed who we are now as individuals with spinal cord injury as opposed to who we were pre-technology. So again, it's a really exciting time to be alive. Uh, and they're really, the options are limitless. And it doesn't take you know, changing the world as much as being an integral part of who we are in our communities and the people around us. So I wanted to leave a, a little bit of time. I think they wanted to do a little bit of question and answer or open for questions at the end if you want to talk. I'd love one. I feel like I'm having a Marco Rubio moment. Thank you. Although if we have nothing, we can always sing. Did people have it? I think, Gene, did you have anything? Yeah, I don't know if we had anything official. I think you want to leave about 15 minutes open. Indubitably. Public policy or anything related. Yeah. Well, you talked a little 
Yeah, it, it's actually, a, it's one of the things where you usually get a lot of surprise from folks. Um, travel's come a long way. It certainly is not a perfect system, uh, but you, the travel industry themselves have, are changing immensely. But it, it takes a little bit of pre-planning. Um, fly it on a large airplane, particularly with a large wheelchair. Um, you gotta plan ahead. You can call the airlines, um, and a lot of times, I mean, most people do everything online these days. Um, but, uh, you know, there's actually a checkbox for, are you a passenger with a disability? And contacting the airlines and letting them know what you need. Because when you fly on a, uh, when you fly anywhere, at this point, you know, you can't take your wheelchair on the plane. Uh, they trans, you actually transfer. Uh, how many people have flown uh, so far? Most of the room? Okay, so you guys have made the uh, transfers into the aisle chairs, or what I usually refer to as the thong version of wheelchair. <laughs> if you haven't seen them, they're very small wheelchairs. Uh, and when you're 6'4", and rather, I like to think of myself as husky as opposed to fat, uh, you, know, you look at those things and you think, where am I going to put my other butt cheek? Because clearly there is not enough room on that. Uh, and then you realize at that point, when they transfer you, that they're going to hook you up Cannibal Lecter style. I mean, it's a very Silence of the Lambs moment. Uh, but they transfer you onto an aisle chair, and then they trans help you transfer into the seat. And, you know, for somebody like myself, I've got, you know, no mobility from the shoulders down. You know, they actually have people who can help you transfer. Uh, and usually, you need to be really direct in saying, this is what I need for help transferring onto the plane, getting back into my wheelchair. And one thing, one secret I will share uh, is that when you fly, making sure you get direct flights if you have a large power wheelchair, huge benefit. If they see you getting in and getting out of it, there's a little more responsibility with your wheelchair. Uh, but, you know, really, it, it still beats the hell out of, fly, out of driving. Uh, but it really, it works really well. And I, I haven't traveled a whole lot outside of the U.S. Um, without, you know, with the exception of the Caribbean. And that, but, you know, travel in the U.S. with a little bit of pre-planning really works really well no matter how big your wheelchair. I mean, it, there are plenty of horror stories I could share. Yeah, I, I remember uh, I actually had a plane that caught fire in midair. Um, we had an emergency drop down in Memphis. And when we went down, they had this whole thing. They said, well, we're going to have to route you through Atlanta. And I'm like, wait a minute. Every time so they pass on not seeing me get in and get out of the chair, they've destroyed my chair. Um, so I'm not doing it. They said, no, we're going we're gonna to work this out. We're going to actually change the gates, and you'll have your gates right next to each other won't be a big deal. So I said, okay. So I, and the, the guy I talked to must have some kind of pull because when they, I flew into Atlanta, you know, normally they won't let you go anywhere in an aisle chair because they're not that stable, they're tiny. Uh, but they said it's a really tight turnaround. Instead of transferring me from an aisle chair to a push chair back to an aisle chair, they just pushed me through the airport in one of the aisle chairs. And again, keep in mind, if you haven't seen it, you are seriously strapped up like Hannibal Lecter. I mean, actually, by the time I get buckled in, I usually have a taste for Chianti sauce and fava beans. 
and so as I landed, they knew that they, it was not really that safe. So when they transferred me off, I get into the jet, the jet bridge, and there's like 15 guys there. And they're waiting to like transfer me from one, you know, from one uh, port to the next. And uh, when you're strapped up from shoulder to feet in a small chair that looks like they're confining you for a reason, and you have 15 guys escort you from one plane to the next, people were looking a little bit uncomfortable with, who is this guy and why is he flying domestic? So. Um, I'm trying to navigate this SSI, Social Security thing, on behalf of my son who just turned 18 years old. It's, it's a daunting task, as I'm sure most people know. One of the things that has been very frustrating to me is you're told to give them whatever they want, you give them whatever they want, and they tell you it'll take two weeks, it'll take three weeks, and short of going to the office, you never can get anybody on the phone. You know, it says, you know, like I have like a caseworker, I guess would be her name. And generally she's responsive, but perhaps she's on vacation. So over the last couple of weeks, I can't even leave her a voicemail. So it's in the end of her message, it says, please call our local office. And they give you the telephone number. And I call the local office. And the local office, again, after pressing all the buttons and putting in all the information, says, we're transferring you to an opera, you know, to somebody who assists you, and they'll tell you that, sorry, all representatives are busy, please call back. How do you do this? Uh, you know, it just, my son was hurt only nine months ago, and we're trying to navigate this system, which I guess is, once you get through it, it is good, but going through it is impossible, it seems like. W what am I missing? Why? You know, what I Social Security is certainly a behemoth to deal with, uh, and it's a pain in the ass. Um, is this, um, this is, isn't work related, this is strictly SSI related? No. Can you hear me? Yeah, um, no, it's just SSI because my son didn't have enough quarters. He was quickly denied SSDI, which we expected, but it's just the SSI that's $700 yeah. a month. And yeah. the ability to get on Medicaid. And I have actually found local politicians and state politicians really pretty good about contacting Social Security. And I'm here to tell you, when those folks get involved, you get answers really quick. Um, it, especially just if being able to write and express, here are the problems I'm having. Um, when they get on it, it happens blistering fast. And they, it's one of the issues that they have been really good about with folks I've worked nationally. Um, and in my own experience, getting those folks involved makes things happen really fast. I would try even a, an alderman to start off with, but contact your state representative and say, these are the problems I'm having. Thank you. Hi. I'm always concerned that when I call Social Security and start asking them questions about working, that sure. it's as if I gave them my Social Security number and now they're just putting in, uh, oh, maybe she could work. and. A week later, I'm going to get a letter saying, you know, we need to reevaluate you. So one question is, is it a concern that once you start asking Social Security questions, it raises eyebrows? And the second question is the um, organization you gave, ChooseWork.net, 
is that government, nonprofit, private, what is that entity? Um, what you, it, I, I maybe should have added in there, I don't know if I had in the slide or not, um, that when you go to choosework.net, you're looking for the Work Incentive Planning and Assistance Program. I'm sorry, say that program again? You're looking for the Work Incentive Planning and Assistance Program, okay. the WIPAs. It's a free, for anybody who is an SSA beneficiary, whether it's SSI or SSDI, um, you can get a, a benefits planner who can help you look at employment, uh, it, its impact on benefits. Um, and there you can ask those questions. They're not Social Security representatives. So that's an SSA website, but I, I meant to say that it's strictly to connect to the WIPAs, to the Work Incentive Planning and Assistance. It's something else. Did I write it I think it it's choose, and it, to me the slides, are, I'm fine sharing whatever. Um, and my contact information is at the end of it. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's just choosework.net. Okay. Um, and that's an SSA system. Look for the work incentive planning and assistance. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, my name is Greg Makeley. I'm the project director for the Work Incentives Planning and Assistance Program in New Jersey. So uh, before you leave, if you have a question about benefits and want to uh, actually get face-to-face -face service from our program, see me before you leave and I'll give you that information. Yeah, I usually refer to that link as the find a guru near you. Uh, you know, to me at the time, when I met the, the first one who talked to me about it, it, I felt like I was meeting a magician. Because uh, you know, when you realize that there are people who know that system and know it well, you know, and I get certainly I, someone I know well from many years of ex experience, get from training other benefits specialists. I mean, it does seem like magic, uh, especially folks who struggle with the system. Hi, I'm Rosalie. I have a two-pronged question. The uh, SSD benefit is that dependent on? How much you used to earn before your injury, and yeah, the SSDI. That's the you know it's certainly the long-term care insurance program. So it's based off your work history. You know how long you paid into your FICA taxes, and how much. So you know the average cash benefit's about a thousand bucks, but it really depends on what your work history is. Get it unless you know if you're somebody who maybe had an injury when you were younger, it may be based off a parent's work history instead of your work history. But yes. So an individual then will get different amount of money depending on what they used to make? Yes, yeah. And so you, know, you may have two people who have the exact same kind of injury that occurred at the exact same time, but their cash benefits is va are vastly different. Again, because it's based on what was paid in during what period of time, that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, my second question is, now if you wanted to go back to work, then not for you to do, uh, lose your benefit in the SSD. Is there a threshold amount that you should be making? Uh, well, in general, the people talk about kind of that over-under amount. I mean, that's the whole substantial gainful activity, which is about 1000 bucks a month. If you're earning below substantial gainful activity, I mean, that amount can be earned indefinitely um, without impacting your cash benefits or your connection to Medicaid whatsoever, or Medicare, I mean. But, you know, at some point, if you earn above that amount, it's going to impact the, your timing. So, but it, and that's what the WIPAs are really genius about. And depending on what you can make, I mean, a lot of times you can earn your way right off of cash benefits and be a lot better off. But they're the folks who can help you think about that process and make sure that your kind of healthcare isn't gonna be the best, it's gonna, it's gonna be in the best situation. Thank you. 
Yeah, because there's um, a and, lot. You know, with the SSI, when you return to work, there are very few cases where you're actually worse off. You're actually always better off working. With SSDI, it may be sticky depending on what your situation is. And that's what the WIP is there for, and they're really great people. Sorry, is there any change um, if you're getting SSDI and then you turn the age that you would have been eligible for Social Security? Is there any change? Yeah, it, it's actually kind of interesting, and the you know, Congress is debating. You know, still at this point, what happens? Because you know, it's it's interesting because once you become um, someone who's on the SSDI system, you move from Social Security disability insurance to at the point you turn 67. Um, then you become an OASDI, an Old Age Survivor's Disability Benefit. So, and the, the work rules are totally different. You, know, you have all these really, all these really specific requirements on reporting and your cash benefits uh, while you are a worker with a disability. But you move to, to, you know, as somebody who's a retired benefit or the Old Age Survivor's Disability Benefit, and at that point, you can return to work and you know, like most of it doesn't even impact your earnings. It's really kind of interesting. So the, the work rules get actually easier um, when it's hardest to work, but, but yeah. Thank you so much, Joe, for being here. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm here till noon, and then I've got to catch a flight back. That's right. So, so Joe isn't here for the morning, so we're very, very lucky to have him as long as we had him, and we're so glad he's here. Yeah, and I, my contact information is on the slides. There are things we can ever do. Be happy to be helpful.